HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Cane5.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. All right. Thank you for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. You are listening to The Farm Report, and I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks. We are coming to you, as always, from the back of Roberta's Pizza in beautiful Bushwick, Brooklyn. And today we are in the studio um, with author and psychologist Mary Pfeiffer. Mary, welcome to the studio. Thank you, Erin. Thanks for having me on your show. So I'm excited today we're going to be discussing um, your work, in particular your new book, The Green Boat, Reviving Ourselves in Our Capsized Culture. Um, before we tuck into that, I want to be able to, to give folks a little bit of a sense uh, of your background and kind of how you came to the topics that you cover in The Green Boat. Well, Erin, I'm a psychologist, and um, all of my books, starting with Reviving Ophelia, have been a kind of a cultural therapy where I first am puzzled and troubled by a problem I'm witnessing and experiencing in my own life, in my own town, And then as I think that through, I realize that what I'm learning might have useful applications for other people, and I write a book about it. In this particular case, um, in the summer of 2010, we were having our hottest summer on earth, on record. It was 127 degrees in Pakistan. The peat bogs in Russia were burning up. In July of that year, I read Bill McKibben's book, Earth, E-A-A-R-T-H, in which he argues that the earth as we know it is already over and that sustainable human life will probably end not in our grandchildren's lifetimes but in our lifetimes unless we make urgent and dramatic changes. Well, when I finished reading Earth, I was just devastated. And I had three or four days. I just could hardly talk. I walked around... um, really in despair. One of the things that hit me during this time, I believed him. I trusted his evidence. Um, I felt in my heart the truth of what he was writing. 
And yet, I didn't know what to do about it. And I didn't even know how to talk to my friends about this because I don't know about you, but if you've ever tried to bring up global climate change with other people, you notice that immediately you're a pariah or the subject has changed or the conversation goes into a very dark place and everyone wishes it hadn't begun. And so this was uh, interesting to me and it, it, it was dispiriting to me. But what I decided to do about my own despair is what I always do about my own despair, which is go to work. Find some action that will make me feel better, that involves helping, making the situation different. And in this case, what I did immediately was think about an environmental issue that was local that I might possibly have some chance of impacting. And it happened to be at the time that TransCanada had announced it planned to put the Keystone XL pipeline through Nebraska, across our wonderful freshwater Ogallala Aquifer and our very fragile sandhills. So I asked three or four friends to come to my house for a meeting, and we showed up and had a conversation about this pipeline, agreed we all wanted to stop it, decided to have another meeting in a week and invite some more people. And that's how our coalition to stop the Keystone XL pipeline started. And by the way, I say meeting, but I could also say party because I invited my friends, people I enjoyed working with, and we always had great food and wine. We didn't meet in offices. We met in parks or at people's houses. And especially over time, we really grew to love each other. And there's a certain joy and sense of community, Martin Luther King called it beloved community, that comes from working with people for a common cause. And so we've been together now two and a half years, and thanks to Nebraska, we have been able to forestall the Keystone XL pipeline. In fact, we can hardly believe our success, but we just will not go away. And we've had many kinds of actions in our state. One of the more interesting things is my friends are urban progressives. Lincoln, I live in the university town. So usually in Nebraska, a very conservative state, we are like the royalty of lost causes. Nothing we ever <laughs> want succeeds in Nebraska. We've spent our whole lives failing. And we expected to fail with this. But what's been very interesting is our first allies in the fight to stop this pipeline were not other urban progressives. It was the farmers and ranchers of western Nebraska. And at the same time, we were uh, starting to be very concerned about the environmental issues. The ranchers and farmers were starting to be very concerned about agricultural issues and about being bullied by TransCanada. So all of a sudden, much to our surprise, we had a very strong coalition with conservative farmers and ranchers. And that's been a real learning experience. So I, I'm interested, you know, you have this experience of reading Bill McKibben's book, um, and that was kind of paired with the announcement of this planned uh, pipeline. And right. it, was a, it was a combination of those two things that you feel like, or that was the right space to take a stand. Well, you know, one of the great things about the Keystone XL pipeline, not just for Nebraska, but for all peoples between Alberta and the um, area where the tar sands are right now being developed 
and uh, Port Arthur, Texas, where the pipeline will eventually be if completed, is it offers us a 3,000-mile stretch of land crossing rivers to have community organization. It's a very concrete local issue for 3,000 miles. And that makes it a great issue because one of the things that I think is very hard for people that want to protect the environment is, for example, you read an article about the acidification of the ocean or the desertification of Africa or the 400 parts per million CO2 in the environment. Well, of course, you care very deeply about that. You would do whatever you could if you knew what to do. But it's hard to know what to do. So the reason I picked the pipeline primarily was it was a local issue, and I could understand it. And I could find some other people who cared about it who could understand it too. And I could work with local resources and politicians to do something about it. So I live in Nebraska, so that was my issue. If you live in New York City, for example, fracking might be your issue. If you live in a city some kind of very local pollution source might be your issue. I think it's good to work locally uh, because I think that's where we all have some impact. And when you think about it, if people who want a clean, sustainable world work locally all over the world, we could have a clean, sustainable world. So when you can you talk a little bit about when you first heard about the the pipeline and how you understood it and how other people in your community understood it? Because I think for me, that's one of the challenges when you're um, confronting, like for us here in New York State, fracking, there's this barrage of kind of information and people coming at it from always at kind of at the margins of the issues seem to be making the loudest noise. So on one hand, they're like, well, you know, you, we, we need this, like, you know, we're in an energy crisis, like this is the solution. And, and, you know, what are the alternatives? There's no alternatives. And on the other hand, it's going to destroy everything. It's going to, you know, contaminate the, the watershed. It's going to destroy small farming towns. And I often find myself kind of in the center looking at both of those sides of an argument and feeling a little bit like I don't trust completely either one of them. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about, you know, how you, um, how you understood the issue and then how as a group you looked for sources that you could kind of trust that seemed um, balanced to right. you. Well, I think there's a very good point. And I think that's where many Americans end up on many different issues is the information is so overwhelming and so contradictory that uh, people end up very un unsure of, of the facts of a matter and of, of the position they might want to take. This Keystone Pipeline issue is interesting, by the way, for, say, President Obama, because environmentalists are very against the Keystone XL. They see it as a very dirty kind of um, fuel that um, will hasten global climate change. Um, on the other hand, one very strong Democratic uh, group the pipeline fitters union is very much for it because they'll have some money come into their union and, and God bless them, they need that money. So you're absolutely right. These issues are complicated. One thing that I pay attention to is who is writing and reporting on a cause and what are their motives. For example, I just was at the State Department hearing in Grand Island, Nebraska, the one State Department hearing in this this country um, before 
President Obama makes a decision. There were over a thousand people there in spite of the fact that a blizzard was occurring at the time. The roads were closing and uh, it was very treacherous to get there. And of those 1,000 people, over 800 people were against the pipeline. And they'd come from all over. There was a member of the hip-hop coalition who'd managed to, at great personal risk, fly in, rent a car, drive through the blizzard to be there. A group of Chicago women had come down in a van. The really interesting thing, the only people who were there for the, um, the, to support the pipeline were uh, – the Pipe Fitters Union, who had been bussed in, and members of the um, fossil fuel um, industry, spokesmen. So one thing is, is one group scientists and concerned citizens, and the other group opposing it, uh, people who are basically going to make a great deal of money on a project. Scientists are very important. And, for example, global climate change is a good issue in itself in terms of who do you believe. Because if you look at the scientists... There's 98% consensus of scientists around the world that man-made global climate change is occurring. But yet many Americans don't realize that. Well, one of the reasons for that is there's actually a lot of deliberate misinformation out there about this issue. And that deliberate misinformation um, has been generated. There's also now a study of the creation of deliberate misinformation called agnotology. It's being spearheaded at Stanford by Robert Proctor that talks about how misinformation is created to actually confuse and obscure information for people. So we have some of that going on, especially when big money is involved. It's very important to look at scientist reports, look at the motives of people behind um, one side or another of an issue, and and read up on it as best you can on your own. So, you know, you're you're trained as a psychologist, and you know when what I think fo- folks are confronted with so many different kind of like issues in in their lives that can be kind of overwhelming and confusing, and like the allocation of your personal kind of mental energy and time to a specific issue. Um, how do we how do we decide that we're going to confront this this giant scary and you know uh often overwhelming issue of climate change i mean i think back to you know personally myself and a lot of uh young students coming out of graduate or undergraduate school who have like this energy and enthusiasm but also this real underpinning of of is it too big for us to right you know, does it really matter? Um, you know, like what, so, so I mean, a lot of what you do in your book is look at ways to kind of provide an antidote to those feelings. And so maybe you can take us through a couple of strategies that we should be employing. Well, this is very good. One thing I talk about in the book, Aaron, is the difference between what I call actionable intelligence and distractional intelligence. And if you're a consumer of radio, news radio, the New York Times, and so on, you can have so much information. And most of that information just makes you feel bad and whipped and stressed and powerless. And so on the other hand, there's a different kind of information, actionable intelligence, which gives you a really good sense for what to do tomorrow morning when you get up. And that's the kind of information I like to give people. So, for example, 
when I'm talking to people about an issue, I, I really try to say, and if this is an issue you care about, here's something you can start doing tomorrow. And, and that can be anything from you can join our group if I'm talking to people locally in Lincoln. Or we're going to have a, a, uh, a benefit for the coalition at the zoo bar on Saturday night. Come if you can and give $5 and learn more about the pipeline. But if I'm talking like to you today on the radio, one of the things I say is people are very busy. People are very stressed. Everyone has an understandable need to relax and have fun. Nobody wants to think about serious, dark topics too much of the time. On the other hand, if you don't think about them at all, uh, if, you, if you do everything you can to block out your awareness of what's actually happening in the world, we won't be able to solve these problems. We can only solve these problems if we're willing to think and talk about them now and then. But the best way to talk about them is what can we do about them, not how awful it is. So, for example, just you and I sitting here, one way I start with people often is go, well, what are you doing already? And almost everyone, when they start saying what they're already doing, has a surprising long, long list of things they're already doing. And then as we talk, I go, well, is there a local issue that you might think you could involve yourself in a bit more? And maybe if you don't have time to join a group or form a group, do you have some idea of how you could be helpful to that organization? Or maybe you could start just with your friends. If you have girls' night anyway, once every month, maybe you could have a clothes swap with your friends so that you're saving money on clothes. Or maybe you could all get together and have some small project that made you feel like you were doing a little bit. You know, the interesting thing from my point of view that I'm saying in terms of global climate change, I have no idea if we can stop global climate change or not. I don't make any predictions about that. What I do know is that if we act, especially if we act together, if we get information together, if we help each other deal with it emotionally, and if we make plans to act on it together, we will feel better. Because the mind functions best when it acts as if there is hope. So many people now are really in despair. They don't want to talk about anything serious. They don't want to read the news. If they think about the world as it is, they go into a kind of a psychic numbing, emotional shutdown. And that isn't a healthy state, actually, for us humans. I think we have a natural, resilient response that we can mobilize if we will at least a little bit every day allow ourselves to be aware of the world as it is and act accordingly. We are going to take just a, a short break, and when we come back, uh, I want to talk a little bit more about um, bridging relationships between different groups. So hang tight. We'll be right back. I'll make it. You're listening to Never by Jerome LOL on the Farm Report on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Kane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Kane5.com. 
All right, we are back. You've tuned into the Heritage Radio Network. We are in studio with Mary Pfeiffer, best-selling New York Times author. Uh, we're talking about her book, The Green Boat. So, Mary, at the top of the show, we talked uh, a little bit about unexpected allies uh, when you started uh, your working group in response to the Keystone Pipeline. And I want to talk a little bit about you know collaborating uh, across groups that might not necessarily be obvious collaborators. Right. Well, that's one of the great lessons we learned from working on the fight against the Keystone XL because, um, for example, I'd never worked much with ranchers and farmers and Republicans out in western Nebraska. We're naturally opposed on most ideological issues. But, you know, the fight to save our state's water supply is not an ideological fight. Our uh, icon for our fight is a rancher named Randy Thompson who looks a lot like John Wayne, wears a cowboy hat and cowboy boots, Republican. And he said a wonderful line about the Ogallala Aquifer and our fight for water. He said, there's no red water or blue water, there's clean water or dirty water. And one of the ways we were able to have such a broad coalition of Nebraskans against his pipeline is we didn't pose any of the issues in ideological ways. We talked about the science. We talked about agriculture and ranching. We have a lot of that in our state. We talked about um, many of our grandparents were homesteaders. Most of us are a generation away or two from farms. People's love of the land. We talked about our desire to protect our state for our grandchildren. And not only our grandchildren, but the grandchildren of the meadowlark and the uh, cottonwood and the uh, coyote. And these are all issues that people in Nebraska can understand. So we had a great deal of unity about the deepest core issues. You know, I mentioned the, the ranchers and farmers and the poets and the urbanites. We also had the CIA, the Cowboy Indian Alliance. And that's been a big hit, not only in our state, but along all the states fighting the pipeline, because the native peoples are very opposed to this pipeline. And um, it's against, actually, many of the treaties they made with the federal government back in around 1860, 1861, for TransCanada to go through their lands without their permission, and they haven't been consulted. And so a very interesting thing is happening with Native peoples, and they're, they're finding lawyers, and they're suing the U.S. government for breaking treaty rights. And probably since... Um, the early 70s with Wounded Knee, this pipeline will be the most unifying um, cause for Native Americans from Canada all the way through Texas. It's also been a really interesting issue, Erin, in terms of uh, demographics. Because I'm, I'm 65, I'm a grandmother, and there's a lot of people my age involved in this fight because we have time to be involved, and we have connections, we have the the relationships with politicians and with resources in our state that can help us put together white paper reports and so on. The other group that's very involved is people in their 20s and early 30s, young people who understand in their bones, this is the world I'm going to inherit. And they have a very personal stake in making sure they have potable water for their children and green space and fresh air. So that's really been fun. And all these different groups working together um, brings a lot of 
different kinds of energy and intelligence to a cause. And it's been a lot of fun. It's really interesting how much fun this kind of civic engagement can be. Well, I think, you know, one of the things that's kind of uh, jumping out at me is in kind of a strange way, the the pipeline is, it, you know, you it, it presents a common enemy and an enemy that is uh, on some level tangible in a way that um, gives you something to kind of unify and strategize against as a diverse population in a way that climate change, I think, was one of the challenging things is it's so That's right. That's right. So if you want to do something here in Brooklyn, you're much better off finding an issue in New York or in Brooklyn that you can talk some friends into working on with you. Because one of the things that happens is believing you're powerless becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you don't think you have any power, you don't. When our group started, we actually had no hope. I mean, if you if you want to see how this world works, try to change it. <laughs> and if you want to see how this world works by going up against international fossil fuel companies, that's a pretty big lesson in how the world works. We had no hope of succeeding, but we proceeded as if we had hope. And what happened is we've actually succeeded so far, much to everyone's surprise. So it's pretty amazing when you think of it what a small group of people that get together and decide we're going to fight this thing or we're going to do this action. And, you know, one of the things that's interesting, even if President Obama approves this pipeline, from our point of view, it's not over because it's not over till we give up and we're not giving up. And um, one of our farmers put it very well, John Hansen, president of our Farmers Union. He said, activism isn't like uh, growing corn where you throw some seeds in the field and walk away and some corn grows up. He said, it's more like raising cattle, raising a dairy cow, where every morning and every night you go out and milk that cow. And that is really what active engagement is. It's a kind of a persistence and a willingness to keep working in the face of defeats. We almost don't talk about defeats. If we have a defeat, our next meeting, our main topic is, so what's our next action? We always plan an action. So I, I want to give you a chance uh, for folks who maybe aren't as familiar with Nebraska to talk about you know, why the state, uh, some of the unique features of the state that um, I think are, are um, allowing your group to draw from a pretty wide variety of allies. Um, you know, there are the water issues, there's the land conservation issues, there's also, um, you know, species protection. I mean, Nebraska's essentially in the middle of... It's in the middle of the Great American Flyway, which means that if you picture the northern North America as an um, hourglass, the place where the hourglass is smallest is right outside of uh, Lincoln along the Platte River. So all the migratory birds that come up from Mexico and South America en route to Canada and Alaska come through our state, including the whooping cranes, the sandtail cranes, Hundreds of thousands of birds come through our state, and they they use the water along the Platte and the water in the sand hills at, as a place to stop and rest. So it's very critical to to habitat protection, bird protection. You know, one of the really interesting things about Nebraska it's a flyover state. A lot of people 
don't know where it is, don't have any goal to ever visit Nebraska. But it turns out for this particular battle, it, it's really a very good place to make a stand. Because when you think about our state, right now we're the heart of the heart of the universe. We're a food production state with the largest freshwater source in the entire country right underneath us. We're dealing with energy issues, food issues, um, water issues in the heart of the country. And that's made us, um, that's made we citizens who live there uh, really energetic defenders of the kinds of resources that everyone on the planet needs to be defending right now. So if folks want to um, find out more and kind of follow your journey, obviously they can pick up the book, The Green Boat. Um, And I think as you've recommended several times throughout our talk today, getting involved in a local issue I think is probably the strongest and like most personal way you can, um, I don't know, explore some of, explore, I guess, explore advocacy, but also gain some sense of empowerment almost. Empowerment joy, a sense of connection to other people. And, um, you know, one of the things that happens to you when you stop avoiding reality and decide to see the world clearly and deal with it as it is, is after a kind of initial pain, you begin to experience your own personal power again. And you begin to experience in your life a sense of vitality and even joy that's missing when you're spending all of your energy denying that which is around you. So I urge all of, uh, of your listeners to think about doing a few small things to be more engaged with the world as it is. Mary, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun, Erin. Thank you so much for tuning in. This has been another episode of The Farm Report. This, like all 30 of our live weekly shows, is available for free as a download through iTunes. You can find us on Stitcher Smart Radio or visit the website, www.heritageradionetwork.org. We are a member-supported organization, and if you like what you hear, we hope you'll consider supporting us by clicking that Donate tab and becoming a member today. Thanks so much for tuning in. Keep listening. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. What's hot at the green market? You're about to find out now. It's the Grow NYC Market Update. All right. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Grow NYC Market Update. We are on the line with Jean Hodesh of Grow NYC's Green Markets. And Jean, where are we heading today? Hi, Erin. So we're going to head up on the A train to Washington Heights and the 175th Street Green Market, which is truly one of my favorite seasonal markets. It was first opened in 1977, so it's been there a really long time and has a very loyal following of customers. 
Um, but today is this year's opening day for the season, and it'll be there each Thursday through November 21st. Uh, so I went up on the A train, and the farmers were just telling me how nice it is to see their returning customers. Um, also, some new additions this year. It's the first year that we're offering compost and textile, textile recycling at 175th. So our coordinator was under his orange tent handing out information to customers, telling them what to bring back next week. They can bring back clothes and textiles to recycle, as well as food scraps that will be turned into compost. Um, and then starting on July 11th, just in a couple weeks, Every week throughout the summer, the Department of Health Stellar Markets Program will be there offering nutrition classes and cooking demonstrations in Spanish and English, as well as activities for kids. So they're actually also partnering with Emblem Health this summer, so we have a lot of partners in the market, and these activities, they always draw a huge crowd. There's always lots of kids and families around learning about how to make healthy lifestyle choices, um, so it really adds to the overall lively atmosphere that this market is known for. Excellent. And, and what about as far as shopping, what are the farmers and, and products we can expect to find? Yeah, the shopping is awesome at 175th Street. Uh, so SNSO, who you might know, their stands are always really piled high. You've seen them at Union Square, Greenpoint, or Dag Hammers Gold Markets. Uh, I think they've been at 175th since it opened in 77. So they were there this morning. They've got all kinds of summer squash. They've got lettuce, purslane, callaloo, and onions from the famous Black Dirt region of Orange County. Um, Miglarelli Farm is there. They had this morning their first pick of basil for the season, as well as cherry golden beets, and their excellent tomato juice. Um, Hefner Farm has incredible uh, herbs for your window boxes and urban gardens, as well as hanging baskets of fuchsia plants, geraniums, and all sorts of other plants to keep New York City green around your house this summer. Uh, bread Alone and Meredith's Bakery are there offering pastries, fresh-baked bread, and pies. And then starting in a couple weeks, the market will expand a little bit more, and we'll see the return of Seatuck Fishery, who I remember a couple summers ago I went up to 175th and got some excellent blue crabs from them. Uh, and also La Baraja and Nalasco's Farm, they're both new farmer development project farmers. Uh, they'll return, and they'll have an incredible selection of specialty Mexican herbs, tomatillos, and other just fresh, beautiful summer vegetables. Excellent. And once our shopping basket is full, what else do you recommend in the neighborhood? What should we be making sure to check out? Yeah, there are some good eats in this neighborhood. So sometimes there's a vendor hanging around the market who's selling tamales, which is always lucky. They weren't there today, but I've seen them in the past. Lucky if you can strike some tamales. Or then just across the street, there's a great restaurant called Malacan, and it's Dominican food. They've got rotisserie chicken. They've got plantains, all kinds of wonderful Dominican delicacies. So it's fun to pop in there. And then just a couple blocks over from the market, there's a really nice park, the J. Hood Wright Park. That's a great place to cool off after you've done some shopping and snack on all the fruit you just bought. Lovely. So aside from making a trek up to 175th, um, what else is going on market-wise over the weekend and the next couple of days that we should keep our calendar clear for? Sure. Well, I wanted to give a plug. Obviously, Summer Produce is coming in in full force, and it is a great place to shop for Fourth of July celebrations. But I wanted to mention that all our Thursday markets will remain open next Thursday, July 4th, including 175th Street. So don't feel like you've missed the boat. You can always go out on Thursday and do some shopping. They'll be there. Uh, and then also we have some other seasonal market openings coming up in the next couple of days. Tomorrow, Lincoln Hospital opens. Uh, Poe Park in the Bronx Bronx opens on July 2nd, and Corona in Queens opens on July 5th. 
And then uh, a couple other fun events that are coming up in the near future. On July 10th, um, Slow Food NYC and the Astor Center are holding their second annual Spirits of New York event from 7 to 9 at the Astor Center. And we've actually... We're partnering with them for about an hour beforehand from 6 to 7. We'll be screening our grains videos, so you can look for more information about that on our website. And then on July 11th at 6.30 at IFC, there's the NYC premiere of a great new documentary called Symphony of the Soil, which is a new documentary from Deborah Kunz-Garcia. Um, it's sort of an exploration of soil, everything you ever wanted to know about soil and sort of a look at it around the world. And then, of course, on July 17th from 4 to 8, we'll keep telling you all about our upcoming Union Square night market. So mark your calendars and, and look forward to joining us out there under the stars. You better believe it. I actually just made dinner plans that are preceded by a stop at the night market. Nice. So <laughs> definitely not to be missed. Well, thanks so much for taking some time out and give us the update this week. Sure. For folks who want to find out more about what's happening in New York City's green markets, definitely visit them at www.grownyc.org. You can get more information on cooking demos, book signings, giveaways, everything that's happening each week in every uh, green market neighborhood. If you want to stay up to date in the moment, definitely find them on your favorite social media stream, Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr. They're everywhere you want to be. And don't forget to stay tuned in next Thursday for another episode of the Grow NYC Market Update. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>